Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. What would you dare to do for Jesus? Would you defy dictators? Worship in secret? Sacrifice your safety? Over 360 million Christians around the world face persecution and discrimination every day. And these are the top 10 countries where Christians risk everything for Christ. Number 10, Sudan. Unrest in Sudan has increased following a military coup. Violence and pressure against Christians have worsened. At number nine, Afghanistan. Following the Taliban takeover, those Christians who have not fled the country have been forced deep underground. If discovered, they face death. Iran is at number eight. Iranian house churches are seen as a threat by the Islamist regime. Church members who are caught are given long prison sentences. Number seven, Pakistan. Pakistan's infamous blasphemy laws are often used to target believers. Christian women and girls are vulnerable to kidnap and forced marriage. Nigeria is at number six. More Christians are killed in Nigeria than in all the other countries of the world combined. And the violence is getting worse. Number five, Libya. In this lawless land, both native and migrant Christians are targeted, kidnapped and even killed. At number four is Eritrea. Christians who dare to meet without official permission risk arrest. Over a thousand believers are in jail without charge. Yemen is number three on the list. The humanitarian crisis continues. Anyone suspected of being a Christian will be deliberately overlooked for aid and might be expelled or killed by their own tribe. Number two is Somalia. Islamic militants are intensifying their hunt for Christians and violent attacks are increasing. And at number one, North Korea, the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Spies are everywhere. Discovery means death, either by execution or by being worked to death in a labor camp. Despite the danger, in all these countries, the church is not defeated. It is living. Powerful, defiant. And for over 65 years, Open Doors has stood with this church. Where Christians risk persecution, our underground networks support millions of believers with emergency food and aid, spiritual care, smuggled Bibles and Christian books, training and legal advice. And where Christians enjoy freedom, We work with local churches to raise prayer and support and to speak truth to those in power. 
Every day around the world, Christians risk everything to follow Christ. Will you dare to stand with them? Hey, good morning. Y'all look good today. Memorial weekend, we celebrate those that have given their lives to protect our freedom, right? That's what the celebration is about. And every once in a while, you come across a passage of scripture that's about a suffering church. And today we're going to read this letter to a suffering church. And um, we're going to take a look at those who've given their lives to not protect our freedom, but to protect our, our faith. And so we're going to look at this today. And that's why I wanted you to see this commercial about what is happening around the world because of this. Here's some facts for you about the persecuted church. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed for their faith. Uh, Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked, and every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. Let's be super clear about this right up front, though. Uh, Church on the Hill and the North American church, we are not the persecuted church, all right? (laughs) But we need to take a look at this. Because these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all part of the same family of God. Uh, We're in this series called The Resilient Church, Seven Letters from Jesus. And then part of being the resilient church is this. Do we actually have the strength? Does the church that is suffering, do they have the strength to deal with suffering? So we're in Revelation chapters one through three. Open your Bibles, make sure that you're there. I want you to be able to read this and underline this for yourselves, whether it's paper or digital, just have your Bible open. We're gonna be in chapter two. Jesus gives the apostle John seven letters that are supposed to be sent to seven churches. Take a look at this. So the the island of Patmos where John is writing is off to the left here, about 60 miles off the coast. The, the letter that he's writing, these seven letters would be delivered by a messenger to Ephesus first. We talked about that letter last week. Then they would go north to Smyrna. We're going to talk about that today. And the letters would go in this loop around. And the thought is this, that all seven letters would probably be read to each and every church. But there's one letter that's written to each church. And the church in Smyrna is a, it's a suffering church. Now, before I read this letter to you, I got to give you some context. The book of Revelation, this letter was written about 96 AD. And there was a guy in the church in about 96 AD. His name is Polycarp. He was a, a young man at that time. But in 156 AD, he would actually be the pastor of that church in Smyrna. The letter that I'm about to read to you. This is about 60 years after the letter was written, and this is his story, okay? The Roman government, they would have a representative in the the town, the city of Smyrna, who was known as the proconsul. His job was this. He had to just make sure that the people that lived in that city, that town, were loyal to Rome. So the proconsul got word that there was going to be this uh, enforced emperor worship, that everyone had to bow their knee to the Roman emperor, And he's thinking, how do I get these Christians to do this? Because we know that they wouldn't. So he thought this, I'm going to go right after the top person. I'm going to go after the pastor in Smyrna. His name is Polycarp, and he is about 86 years old at the time of this. On February 22nd, 156 AD, Roman guards pull up to Polycarp's house. 
a whole squadron of them. His friends, they want to help him escape, right? They want to hide him and then get him out of the house, let him run away, and not Polycarp. Polycarp feeds them lunch. And then he says, before you arrest me, I would like to be able to pray and pray for you. He starts praying, and 15 minutes go by, and 30 minutes go by. An hour goes by, and he's still praying. (laughs) At the two-hour mark, the guards finally interrupt him and say, I'm sorry, we have to arrest you. They arrest Polycarp, and they bring him to an arena in Smyrna, and the proconsul, he's there, and he approaches this 86-year-old pastor, and this is what he says. Just curse Christ, and I will set you free. This is Polycarp's response. 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul says this, just swear by the spirit of the emperor, and that will be sufficient. Polycarp responds to him, if you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you know who I am. Hear it plainly. I'm a Christian. Proconsul says, he's losing his temper at this point. I will burn you alive if you don't change your mind. Polycarp, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, then is extinguished. But you're ignorant of the fire of coming judgment. So what are you waiting for? I will not change my mind, so do what you will. And they put a stake in the arena. They put dried wood all around it. And they take Polycarp and they tell him, nail him to the stake. Polycarp says this to him, you can leave me as I am. He that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me to stay here without your pitiful safeguard of nails. And on that day, Polycarp suffered and he became a martyr for Jesus. And what's amazing is that his story went viral, not just through the churches, His story actually went viral among Christians and also non-Christians. The Christians were emboldened by this act of violence towards one of their leaders, but it raised compassion in the non-Christians because they saw how committed this person was to their faith. Here's the story of the persecuted church. It, It goes like this. Suffering doesn't destroy the church. Suffering strengthens the church. Polycarp's death, it actually made him a hero of the faith and inspired many Christians to remain faithful. So the letter that I'm about to read to you, it's to this church in Smyrna where Polycarp was a pastor. It's the letter that encourages the suffering church. And before I read it, just a disclaimer, here it is. We are not the persecuted church. As Christians, we can be embarrassed by people at work, made fun of, rejected, discriminated against, but we do not face the kind of persecution that the church in Smyrna faced or churches around the world face. We have global partners that live in that part of the world, people that we love and support, pray for. But that's not us. So I want to be super clear about that. Because on social media, you might look at some people's feeds who live in North America, and you might think they're the persecuted church. But we're not. But I want to say this one more thing before I read this letter. Um, We need to be aware of this. Even though we're not the persecuted church, I know that some of you, you're sitting in your own personal suffering today. It could be a medical report, the death of a loved one, a broken relationship. Maybe it's just such an internal suffering for you. And I'm wondering this, that as I read this letter to the suffering church, 
if God might have an encouragement or a hope for you today to give you strength in your suffering. Here's the text. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. (laughs) That's a pretty harsh criticism. I'll explain that in a minute. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. That 10 days is symbolic. It means it's just a certain length of time. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So what are we going to learn from a letter to the suffering church? The first is this. Jesus introduces himself as this person. Jesus suffered for us and he suffers with us today. In every single one of these letters, there's a pattern and it always starts with this. Jesus introduces himself and he says this. These are the words of him who is the the first and he's the last who died and came to life again. And he says, I know your afflictions. So the word, the first and the last, that little phrase, it always describes God in the Old Testament. But here in Revelation, it's used to describe Jesus. Why? Because he is God. The word first and last, last, it describes Jesus as infinite. He always has been, and he always will be, which is, I think, encouraging to the church. You're currently being threatened by this Caesar who will die, be buried, and be gone. He's not infinite. Don't fear the temporary threat in front of you because there's a God who's infinite. He's Jesus. Not only is he infinite and all-powerful, but he gives them this reminder. It describes Jesus as he is the one who died and came back to life again. And then he writes this, I know your affliction. And when he says, I know your affliction, listen to this. It doesn't mean, hey, I see you. I see what you're going through. That word means this. I personally have experienced your affliction. He's referencing his death. He's saying this, I have suffered in a horribly painful way because he's the one who was punched in the face and spit upon. He's the one who had his flesh ripped from his body with a whip, taking him to the brink of death. He was the one who was given his cross beam from the cross to carry until he couldn't carry it anymore. He's the one who was nailed through his wrists to this cross, nailed through his feet to the cross. He's the one who suffered for six hours on that Friday. He's the one who was pierced in the side, verifying that he actually was dead. He's the one who died on a cross. Our king knows firsthand what suffering is. Question, what does that matter? See, when people go through suffering... They kind of want to look at Jesus and pray this prayer like, Jesus, don't you know what I'm going through? (laughs) He's like, I know worse. Jesus, are you actually here? Where are you? Don't you know what's happening to me? I want you to hear this. Jesus not only suffered for you, but he actually suffers with you when you suffer today. He's not just the one who died, though. It also describes him as he's the one who came back to life. And I think what that refers to is this. It's the hope that you and I have. It's the hope that there's something after this life, after this 
suffering that is filled with life and joy. And I'll get more to that in just a minute. But here's a second thought for you about a letter to a suffering church. Jesus normalized suffering. I know it doesn't sound, I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot of hope, right? (laughs) He normalizes it. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. So here it is, the church in Smyrna, they're afflicted, they're poverty stricken, they're slandered, they're imprisoned, they're threatened with death, which is actually normal for the Christian life. It's not normal for the North American church. But if you actually listen to what the Bible says, how many of y'all have a Bible promise book? You know, it's a little book of all the promises in the scripture. Let me read to you some verses that'll never show up in a Bible promise book. Here's one, John 15, 20. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Bible promise book. 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That verse scares me, actually. Because if I'm not persecuted, maybe I'm not actually trying to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But we'll hold on to that for now. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Why? Because persecution is, is normative in the Christian life. As something strange has happened to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't miss this. If suffering and persecution aren't the norm, then a Christian who is suffering can think this. Well, if I'm suffering, well, then Jesus just can't be God. This faith that I have, it just doesn't work because if Christians are supposed to be happy and have an easy life, then maybe it works for everybody else. It just doesn't work for me. Maybe I'm just more broken than everyone else. This is why the prosperity gospel is super, super dangerous. And I'll mention it often. The prosperity gospel says this, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And if you're not experiencing those things, then there's a problem with your spiritual life. It means this, though. The prosperity gospel means you have to ignore huge chunks of Scripture. And all of this is true and worthy to be followed. So I need to explain something about this, um, about this church in Smyrna. He, he makes this statement that sounds very anti-Semitic. Here's the verse. It says, I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews, and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Not a very positive view of the synagogue in Smyrna. So let me be really clear about this. Jesus is, does not have any anti-Semitic attitudes or beliefs. He's a Jewish man making a comment about the temple or the, excuse me, the synagogue in Smyrna. So let me explain this. Jesus loved the Jewish people. He still does today. And he loved them so much that he died for them and hopes that they actually believe in him. But this is what this phrase means. In Smyrna, like a lot, like all the other seven churches, um, the, the Christians face persecution from two groups of people, the Jews but, but also the Romans. Now, everyone was demanded in these towns to bow down in emperor worship, except, did you know this? The Jewish people. They had an exception. They had battled with the Romans for decades so that they could actually have this exemption. Like everyone had to bow down to the, the, the Roman king, the Roman emperor, except for the Jewish people. Why? Because they went to war over it. 
So they were the only ones who didn't have to. Here's what's interesting. Because Jesus was Jewish and all of his followers in the very early days were all Jewish, the Romans thought these Christians were just a subset of the Jewish people, which meant this. They were protected under the Jewish exemption of not having to bow down to Caesar. But what was happening in the church in Smyrna, as well as all the other the, the churches in the area, the Jewish synagogue is outing them to the Roman government. They're not a part of us. They're not, they're not a part of the, the Jewish people. It became much more difficult because so many Greeks were joining the church that all of a sudden they were not protected. What happens to Christians that are not protected under this exemption? We know this from history, that they were thrown to lions, they were burned alive at the stake, they were covered in the bloody animal skins and then fed to dogs as sport in an arena. They were crucified, stabbed, and beheaded. And John is simply stating this, you're being slandered by a group of people who are trying to leave you vulnerable to this Roman government who will kill you. So John reminds this suffering church in this letter, Point number three, Jesus, he empowers the church to be faithful instead of fearful. Here's what he says. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you'll, be able, you'll suffer uh, persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. Here's a question. What does it look like to be faithful? What does that look like when you suffer to be faithful? It literally means this, that you are filled with faith of what? That Jesus is with you. That he really is the son of God, that he really died on a cross for you, that he really was resurrected. All of these truths. And you fearlessly can share that with people. Does faith mean that we believe that Jesus is going to rescue us from our suffering? The answer to that, obviously, is no. Now, in the Old Testament, there's such a great story there about some people who were actually facing a, a being burned alive, just like Polycarp. And you might know their story. Their, their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're familiar with this story? Um, they were told to bow down and worship the statue of the Babylonian king. They say, we ain't going to do that. And this is their faith-filled story. Their response is this. When King Nebuchadnezzar tells them, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace, here's the words they spoke Back to him. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Listen to the next verse though. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. These are the words from men who are about to suffer. And here's what's amazing. Their words leave open two options. The first option, God's going to rescue them from the fire. Here's the second option. God's going to allow them to be burned alive, suffer and die, and then bring them to, to heaven. And they're like, either way, ain't bowing down to a fake God. And now you may know how the story ends. They're thrown into the fire. And as the king watches them in the fire, he says this, he says, didn't we throw three men in there? How come I see four men in there and they're walking around unbound and unharmed and the fourth man looks like a son of the gods? It's Jesus who's with them. Why? Because he's infinite. 
He's always been and always will be. So in the story, it says, the king shouts to them, hey, y'all come out of there. Shadrach says, come and get us. It might not actually be in the text. They come out and it says that they don't even smell like smoke because Jesus rescues them from the fire. The point is this, what does it mean to be faith-filled? It means to believe in God, that even in suffering or being rescued, that both options are possible as we remain loyal to who Jesus is. Um, I currently have a list of people I'm praying for who are battling cancer. Um, I, I know cancer isn't the same thing as like what we're talking about, suffering for your faith, but it is people's personal suffering. So even though it's not persecution, I think maybe we have something to learn about this. So, and so I'll just say this. I am praying for their complete miraculous healing. I don't demand it and I don't command it. I request it from the one who is infinite and all-powerful. But I also pray for their faithfulness to Jesus, for their comfort in suffering, for their hope in Jesus's love for them. And I pray for their final victory, that they're loyal to Christ and their victory over death in heaven. Because both healing and suffering, I think, are options this side of heaven. If you ever met people who've, um, who've uh, gone through suffering, battled cancer, and you go, wow, their faith is so strong, so amazing. I could never have that kind of strength. <laughs> ever thought that? <laughs> Here's what's interesting. The truth is that God is never going to give you strength to go through something that you are not facing. Here's the good news. If you ever go through it, he will meet you in the midst of it. And he will give you strength because he commands us to be loyal to him and to not be afraid, but to be faith-filled. So 83 times in the Bible, God commands people, do not be afraid. And when the apostle Paul, he suffered something. Uh, Tyler read this earlier about his thorn in the flesh. There's something physical about him. We have some ideas about what it might've been. Not really essential to go into that at this point, but he's suffering. And Jesus gives him this very specific message to him. He says this, my grace, it's enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What good is Jesus's power if we never go any th through anything difficult and we never need it? That's not power. That's just boasting by Jesus. In our weakness, though, you're going to find a strength that you never knew Jesus was able to give you. It's not your strength. It's his. But this is a message for the persecuted, suffering church. I believe it's a message, though, too, that for those of you that are personally suffering right now, God can give you strength to remain faithful, and you don't have to approach it with fear. Fourth and final point for you in the midst of this and a letter to the suffering. Here it is. Jesus loves you. He loves you and he promises that your best life is yet to come. Here's where I get this from the text. Verse 10. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, and you can underline victorious, it means the overcomer, will not be hurt at all by the second death. So our best life is never in this life. Our best life will always be in the next life, but only for those who John calls 
the victorious, the overcomer. So in this, if this life belongs to the victorious, if this next life belongs to the victorious, the overcomer, who are they? Because doesn't it sound like you've got to do something monumental to earn that? Okay, John wrote a letter to explain what it was. It's the letter of 1 John. It's chapter 5, verse 4. Here's what he writes. For everyone born of God, meaning you have this relationship with Jesus and, and you are born again, for everyone who's born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Here it is. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. If you think you have to muster up all of this strength to fight this battle in your life, here's what you have to do. You have to have a relationship with Jesus. When he lives in you, he gives you hope that you don't have right now. When he lives in you, he gives you a strength to endure things that you did not think you could endure. You're going to have challenges in this life. But we just have to believe in him. It's not this thing that we have to overcome and conquer. We just have to be with him and allow his strength to fill us. So quick question. Did the letter work? (laughs) You know, the one that Jesus had John write to the church in Smyrna. Did it work? Did it give them strength and did it give them victory? Uh, This town in Smyrna is now the modern day city of Izmir in Turkey. And today you will find Christian churches in that town. Why? Because Jesus's letter to the church worked. They've suffered over these last 2,000 years. Some seasons suffered more than others. The Christians are a minority there. But you see, when Jesus lives with you and in you, he gives you strength and it leads other people to believe in him. Now, there's a song that I think captures the essence of who God is in the midst of suffering. And it's written way back in in 1860. There's these two sisters, okay? Anna and Susan Werner. And they were actually, they went through through their own personal suffering. They went through poverty. And in 1857, uh, there was this big financial panic and their family lost everything. They lost their house, all of their money. They moved into this dilapidated old house on an island in New York, across from West Point Academy. They had to figure out how are we going to find money to survive. So these two sisters, they started writing books. In one of their books, there's this sick boy they write about. His name is Johnny Fax. He's dying. And Johnny asks his Sunday school teacher to come and comfort him. And he asked the Sunday school teacher, hey, would you sing me a song? And this... Mr. Linden picks up this boy and he starts singing him a song and he keeps singing. An hour goes by and this little boy slips from this life into the arms of Jesus. And they write about this story and make no mistake, I mean, this is not a true story. They, they made up the story. It's just, it's a, it's a make-believe book. But I bet you that almost every single one of you knows the song that he sang to that boy. The song that he sang to a suffering boy, to usher him into the kingdom of God. Now, before I tell you what that song is, that's just a story in a book, right? It was made up. But these same two women, they would actually lead Bible studies for the cadets at West Point. 
They were so impactful in that community that when these two sisters died, they were the only two civilian women buried in the military cemetery there alongside military leaders and Medal of Honor recipients. Anna and Susan taught soldiers that song that was written in the book. It's a song that a suffering soldier could take into battle to find hope and strength that God loved them even though they were suffering. Do you know what that song is? If I showed you their gravestone in that cemetery today, you'll know that song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You know this. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Oh, a couple of you have heard it. <laughs> to those around the world who are suffering and suffering for your faith, May you be strengthened today. For those of you around the world that you're suffering and you're persecuted, may you be strengthened and encouraged to live with Jesus and live for Jesus. And know this, Jesus loves you. He promises that your best life is the life to come. So be faithful and be an overcomer. To those of you that you're here in this room today or you're watching online and you're not persecuted for your faith, but there's something going on in your world and you're suffering. May you be strengthened and encouraged that Jesus loves you and promises that your best life is the life that is yet to come. Let me encourage you with this. Be faithful and be an overcomer. I want us to end by standing and singing that simple song today. So stand with me. Let's sing. <laughs>